Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, one man, one vote. All right, Richard, and that concept, one man, one vote, is our topic today because it's also a topic that's facing the Supreme Court in a case that they're going to be hearing this session. And we can dive into the specifics of that case in a moment. But why don't you just start us off with the historical background here? Where does the phrase one man, one vote come from and what's its significance in American constitutional law? Well, it's a very famous phrase that was introduced by Earl Warren in a case called Baker against Carr that was decided – or Justice Brennan, I guess it was um, – just decided in 1962, which involved the question as to whether or not under the Equal Protection Clause or perhaps some other clause of the Constitution, uh, the United States court should essentially order the state to reapportion the district. This case came out of Tennessee and Tennessee essentially had a system in which the individuals who lived in rural parts of the state would have districts in which perhaps they had a thousand people who would get one representative in the state assembly and then there'd be people in Nashville or some larger city would have 20 or 30,000 people with the same number. Uh, so if you actually went back and you looked at the statistics and you tried to figure out what percentage of the total population you need to get a majority of votes in the House um, in Tennessee, it could be a number like about 15 to 20 percent. There were huge numbers of efforts under state law to try to force the reapportionment. But for one reason or another, the status quo ante always held uh, so that nothing was done over a 50-year period at the time when urbanization of the state made the imbalances even greater than they had ever been. Uh, so what you then try to do is to figure out how you can go past uh, the uh, local government. And the first thing you think about is maybe I could go to the federal government and try to get some help that way. But the state election system is generally autonomous from the federal system. And since there was no obvious racial element that was built into this, it was an urban-rural split, um, it would be difficult, people thought, to get this as a kind of a civil rights violation. And 1962, of course, is also three years before the passage of the first Voting Rights Act in which that became a live option. So what they had to do is to find a judicial attack and that's exactly what they did. The first time this was brought before the Supreme Court in a case called Colgrove and Green decided in 1946, a fractured court. The dominant opinion was written by uh, Justice Felix Frankfurter and as a judicial restraint guy, what he did is he found all sorts of reasons why it is that no court should intervene into quote unquote this political thicket. And he then decided that you, no particular voter had standing to challenge the situation and there was no way that even if you allowed somebody to challenge it that you could figure out what the appropriate form of relief would be. So he said better hands off. Uh, in 1962, Frankfurter was still on the court. It was his last year. And Justice William J. Brennan, who had been his student at Harvard, came up with a better idea. And he decided that this case was governed by the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, which says that no person shall be deprived of equal protection of the law, full stop. And that a situation in which one man did not have one vote of equal power constituted an improper system of vote dilution, which vastly, with vast consequences, 
and came up with the idea, therefore, uh, that this was a constitutional violation of the federal constitution applied to the state, which gave an end run around everything else. The decision was perhaps one of the most controversial decisions of the Warren Court, um, next only to Brown v. Board of Education in terms of its impact. Uh, but the decision held, and after that time, all sorts of further decisions had taken place in which, except for the United States Senate, where the two senators per state is essentially in entrenched into the Constitution. Virtually every other election in which you have districting has been subject to a rough proportionality requirement, give or take 10% at the most, under this particular reading of the Equal Protection Clause. How would you grade that decision out on originalist terms? Is there a strong case for that kind of ruling in the text of the Constitution? On originalist terms, I think it's extremely weak. Um, but the whole Equal Protection Clause has been subject to so many odd twists and turns that it's hard to know how you get back to the originalist notion. Let me start with the beginning. The Equal Protection Clause essentially is the third guarantee that you see in Section 2, I guess it is, or in the original section of 14th Amendment. Uh, the first part of the clause says – um, every person born or naturalized in the United States is a citizen of the United States and of the state in which they reside. And then the Privileges and Immunities Clause, what it does is gives a specific list of protections that apply to citizens of the United States. It was eviscerated in the slaughterhouse cases decided in the early 1870s. What happens is the very narrow reading of the slaughterhouse decision prompted both liberal and conservative judges alike to try to stuff as many things as they could into the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause to offset the original situation. I'm pretty sure that as an originalist matter, two things were essentially meant by the Equal Protection Clause and by the Due Process Clause. First is that the class of rights that you were talking about that were protected was exceedingly narrow. Uh, it had to do with essentially uh, imprisonment on the one hand and confiscation of property on the other but with nothing else associated with that. That's why you talk about equal protection. You cannot have prosecution which is based on race or some other extraneous factor more serious for one group uh, than it was for the other group. This was an exceedingly serious problem at the time, uh, so the guarantee actually had a lot of teeth. But it's quite clear if you read it as essentially the guarantee that you give to non-citizens, right, then the thought that somehow or other the Equal Protection Clause figures out how voting is supposed to take place when voting is usually, if not necessarily, a citizen-type operation is completely counterintuitive. And the second argument is there is a particular provision with respect to voting, and that provision is the 15th Amendment, which was passed in 1870. And essentially it talks about prior conditions of servitude and makes no particular reference to anything that remotely looks like one man or uh, one vote. If in fact you then try to go back to the broader reading of the Privileges and Immunities Clause in the first part, it in fact does contain references through the cases to voting rules, but essentially it says that everybody who wants to go into another state and to move there is allowed to join in according to the local practices and usages. So what happens is you can now count as one citizen in a particular case in Tennessee, but you can't blow the system up. And what Justice Brennan decided to do was to blow it up 
because as often happened under the Warren Court, if you see a perceived evil, what you do is you find a constitutional remedy. And so there was a huge battle between those people who thought that technically the decision was absolutely indefensible, voting wasn't covered by the Equal Protection Clause and so forth, and those people who thought it was absolutely necessary. And it's one of these cases where both sides are right, and you have to decide which is more important. And given the fractured history, I think I would have voted with Justice Brennan on this one, but I would have basically bit my tongue while doing so. One last historical question before I move you on to the current case, which is one of the critics of this decision at the time was Senator Everett Dirksen, who actually proposed a constitutional amendment to overturn it. And I'm quoting you here his argument at the time. He said, the the forces of our national life are not brought to bear on public questions solely in proportion to the weight of numbers, end quote. And he said that if they were, quoting again, six million citizens of the Chicago area would hold sway in the Illinois legislature without consideration of the problems of their four million fellows who are scattered in a hundred other counties, end quote. Um, Richard, you could certainly make that argument today in regard to Illinois, in regard to California, in regard to New York, in regard to any state that has sort of sharp urban-rural divides. Do you think – did Dirksen have a point there? He certainly had a point, but it also, again, it has to be set into context. The traditional response has been as follows, and I think it's the right response, is the moment you start using majoritarian systems to decide collective action provisions – all institutions of private property are going to be at risk because the majority can vote to tax or to otherwise regulate those with substantial means for the for everybody else. That was essentially the danger that James Madison saw in this thing when he was in favor of giving particular protections, for example, to private engagements under the contracts clause. The best way in which to handle that is not to try to undo majority will but to give strong protections of contract rights, religious liberty, property rights, and so forth. And what makes the combination so toxic in the modern world is that those specific protections have been downgraded to a very low level of rational basis protection uh, so that you can pass a statute in Illinois one way or another which says if you just happen to be in a city which has more than 3 million people, this rule applies to you, but it applies to nobody else. And with a straight face, people will say, okay, you can now get Chicago and give it special benefits to special burdens. And I think if you had stronger property rights, then you would be much more comfortable with the broader franchise. What's quite clear is you'll never go back on the broader franchise. And at this particular point, I don't think you're going to go back and get much sort of more vigorous protection of property rights, religious liberties, and so forth. So we live in an imbalanced um, majoritarian situation. And what the majority does is it spends a lot of money trying to persuade people to vote its way. The majority comes against it, and you see these pitched battles. Uh, corporations have money, labor unions have members, and they duke it out. I'm not in favor of the situation, uh, but it's quite clear whatever Dirksen may have thought about this vision um, 55, 60 years ago, uh, the world is no longer in that particular place. One man, one vote in some sense is necessarily enshrined and e weak protection of economic liberties is equally enshrined in our constitution. I think we pay a very high price for it, but certainly this case coming before the Supreme Court is not going to transform the situation. Okay, let's talk about this case. It's called Evanwell v. Abbott. It's out of Texas. And what's at issue here is an argument over how districts should be drawn up. Do you base it on the total number of people in a given district, which is how Texas does it right now, or on the total number of eligible voters? So if you get a district with a lot of non-citizens, either illegal immigrants or legal immigrants who don't have citizenship, or I suppose the argument would run this way if you had a district with a disproportionate number of children. 
you could have two districts of comparable size in absolute terms but with much different numbers of qualified voters and that's what's being challenged here. What, what do you make of this case, Richard? Well, I mean first of all, I think as a case it's going to be a dead loser because uh, what happened is when they put this thing forward for the first time, they said, said it was based on population full stop and there were no ambiguities uh, uh, that were explored with how it was to be a turban. And the second problem that one has is we start to look at this thing, you're going to need a very powerful theory to explain why it is that a system of representative democracy depends upon eligible voters or actual voters as opposed to people who are within a particular kind of district. And it gets really complicated because in early days, uh, oftentimes you could extend voting rights to non-citizens, particularly in local elections, and who knows what is to be done. Uh, eligible voters is probably better than actual voters because actual voters will switch violently from one election to another. Uh, but I think what's going to happen is the Supreme Court is going to say this. We've done it this way for 55 years. Nobody has ever put this fo theory forward. Um, we, unless you have a powerful reason for adopting it, um, we are not going to change from the current status quo. And so therefore, it's going to stand. My colleague, Rick Pildes, who's a very eminent theorist on democratic elections and on voting, has written something on SCOTUS to that effect and has a lot of reasons associated with with it. The simplest and chief one is which is if you look at all of the various provisions that talk about how you deal with these uh, electoral issues, everything is always couched in terms of persons. Nothing is ever couched in terms of eligible voters. And so if you have a constitutional commitment uh, to the broad voting base, I mean to the broad population base of persons and so forth, as for example in the due process and the equal protection clause, it's going to be very hard to get the Supreme Court to say uh, that you must do it the other way. And I think it's probably going to be the case. It would be tricky to get them to say that you may do it. But in this particular case, um, if you're trying to force somebody to adopt this kind of a metric, which I think is the posture in the Everett situation, I think it's basically going to go down in flames. The hard question is why did they take it given the fact that there's no conflict uh, between the circuits? With characteristic insight there, Richard, you have – I anticipated the final question that I had for I'm you. Sorry. You're, you're well, no, it's perfectly fine. You're telling me that this is probably not going to be a very close case, and as you just mentioned, no real action on this in in the uh, at the appellate level. So, why, if you were to venture a guess, why bother taking this up? Especially because it, it's caused so much dyspepsia in the the press, the sort of anxiety about where this could go. Well, I think one of the arguments is that. Well, there are two arguments, and they're the same one. One of them is to say, look, you know, we really think this is a fine idea, and, you know, we've slammed down ourselves on the lower courts. So another thing is, if you really think that this is a dangerous idea, uh, you may come to the conclusion that trying to run reapportionment is an extremely difficult and time-consuming process. And if this option is always going to be on the table, it's going to create all sorts of uncertainties. So you take it up now so as to kill the thing off, so as to return to the status quo ante. And that's my particular guess, is that um, once this thing is sort of left out of the bottle, it looks like a dangerous genie to the Supreme Court. There's going to be all sorts of speculation as to which party is going to be helped by this uh, the usually the back of the envelope com you know, complication is that eligible voters, those who've registered, tend to be more Republican than Democrats. So if in fact you concentrate on the eligible voters, you'll shift away from Democratic to Republican politics. Whether this is true or false, uh, one wants to be very different. You know, a 
electoral situations will change given the change in the rules. Um, but I think, in effect, their attitude is that this area has been hard enough to try to do it right now. If you actually look at what one person, as it's now called, one vote tends to do, it leads to districts that are sort of geometric monstrosities because not only do you have to deal with the one person, one vote type situation, you also have to deal with the ability to maximize what they call um, minority majority districts, that is those districts where members of minority groups racially in fact are a majority, that creates majority majority districts which are likely to be much more conservative and you put together the one man one vote situation with the uh, racial redistribution stuff and voting law turns out to be one of the most difficult areas to get your hands on and the truth about the matter is in all of this situation there's no strong theory which talks about what sort of purchase you should have um, given your increase in percentage of influence so if somebody says we're first past the post I get 51 I get everything I'm he says, well, the 49% are disenfranchised. So some people say, well, you have to have proportionate voting and then you have to have larger districts and so forth. Every effort to try and commit, com, you know, cabin this thing down so there's one dominant theory has failed. My guess is when they come to this issue, they're going to see exactly the same problem. And the Supreme Court says, so long as we've got the equality constraint, that's enough to prevent flagrant abuses of the sort that we saw in Baker and Carr in Pennsylvania and we'll let things peacefully lie. I hope hope they're right. I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, but the soft underbelly of an incoherent set of theories uh, dealing with electoral representation is still something which dogs all modern constitutional law. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.